Thank you, Delaney. Um, to be clear, I am always grateful to hear uh, the voice of God's people uh, reading scripture and, and, and leading us in prayer and in song. Um, maybe particularly in a week when the pastor has gotten hit by a head cold <clears throat> and is working on holding his voice together, um, it's, it's particularly nice to be um, spared uh, reading, especially that long of a passage. I probably should have given some, some instructions about letting you sit down for that one also. Uh, these are some long uh, passages. Um, before we come to it and look at this, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Um, be a bit briefer <laughs> than normal. Uh, but let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we are always dependent on your spirit to know which words uh, you need us to hear uh, and which ones you don't. Um, Father, I do pray uh, that you would uh, sustain my voice as I um, preach uh, this, this passage, as we look at, 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 this, at this, this part of your word to us. Um, but we really are dependent on your spirit. Uh, to work through your word and to know what it is that we need to hear. Uh, you know where every person in this room is. Uh, you know the cares and concerns that we bring with us. You know the ways in which this story, uh, on the one hand, seemed very strange and foreign uh, to us, but on the other hand, in, in some way that we can't even put our finger on, just resonate with what it means to be human and what it means to live in a fallen world and to be a part of that fallen world um, and to be in need of your salvation. Father, we are grateful that among the ways that you work to save sinner, uh, sinners is through the reading and the preaching of your word, um, the gathering of your people <clears throat> around your word and around your table. Um, we are thankful to be gathered that way uh, today. In spirit, I pray um, that as always, um, the word uh, would not go out and return to you void without accomplishing its purposes. Um, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this family really is a mess, isn't it? Um, we, we have said repeatedly as we've gone through this, if you read these stories from the lives of Isaac and Jacob, <clears throat> looking for human heroes and moral exemplars to pattern your life after, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be confused. Um, you have to read these stories as one in which God is the hero, and he is graciously at work um, in the lives of fallen human beings um, like these and like us. One of the things in particular that I've been thinking about this week um, in looking at this passage and, and just thinking about just the, the way that sin and fallenness and character flaws have, have propagated themselves through the generations of this family is um, the way that as, as parents, we often, in some moments, we, we, we desperately want to be able to control the track that our children's lives will take, right? We, we desperately want to be able to spare them from the mistakes that we made, um, we, want to, we want to see them thrive. We want to be able to exercise that kind of control. And then there's other moments when we desperately hope that we don't have any control over the, over the track uh, that our children's lives will take because we can see what a mess we make of it. And we desperately hope that in spite of ourselves, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our mistakes as parents, they'll turn out okay. Um, I, was, I was reading something this, this past week um, there are so many studies about this question, you would not believe, right? 
and, and there, was a, there was a rant. I was reading an article, and they republished a, a rant that somebody published on Twitter just about the question of um, putting your infant child to sleep, right? And here, the rant said, swaddle the baby tightly, but not too tightly. Put them, put them on their back to sleep, but don't let them be on their backs too long, or they'll be de developmentally delayed. Give them a pacifier to reduce SIDS. Be careful about pacifiers because they can cause nursing problems and stop your baby from sleeping soundly. If your baby sleeps too soundly, they'll die of SIDS. And on and on and on and on, right? All of this contradictory uh, evidence. Um, you know, the story that came to, to mind from our own lives, um, back when our kids were, uh, I think Jacob was four, Harden was two, Lucas hadn't come along yet, and Leanne read this story. Uh, some of you might remember seeing this. I think it was in the Atlantic. It was about Danish playgrounds. And there was this story about these playgrounds in Denmark that were just intentionally dangerous, right? I mean, like tires, broken wooden structures, you know, like sections of chain link fence, just for them to like run around. And that was the point. You know, they, they, the idea was kids need danger. They need to be able to go around and explore, and maybe even hurt themselves. Um, and that's okay. Um, this was obviously a little bit controversial. Um, well, Leanne read this and she got inspired. Um, not to send our kids into quite that environment, but she grabbed Jacob, and our, like four-year-old Jacob, two-year-old Arden. She said, okay, here's what you can do. You can hold hands and you can walk down to the corner by yourselves and back, right? They go, yeah, and they send them off. And they go, and they go down the street. Two minutes later, there's a knock at the door. And our neighbor is there, holding two very disgruntled little children, looking up at them. You know, they know what they're supposed to be out there doing. He says, I found these. Are they yours? And they go, oh, thank you, Donald. You know, and bring the kids back in. So that was our attempt, our failed attempt, to, to buck the trend on, uh, on, on helicopter parenting. At, at, the, at the very least, we learned, okay, we live in a neighborhood where people are watching out for our children, and that has come in handy. Um, They've also learned to watch out for our dog. Um, that's come in handy, too. Um, so that, that, at least, is reassuring. But again, there's just this, this, this conundrum that we have. How much control do we exercise over the lives of our children? How much do we want? How much would we actually want to be able to control um, the lives of, of our children? Y you can take this in all kinds of directions. Um, you know, this is the classic nature versus nurture kind of debate. You can get theological about this um, and, and talk about what about God's providence over us versus our own free will. Just how much control does he exercise? How much do we exercise? Um, these get into like rich philosophical um, depths that are fun to explore. But I think at the end of the day, the important thing for us um, is, that we, is that we see it, that what this has to do with God's character. Because most of the time when God talks about his care for us, it doesn't just talk about his providence, his, his governing of all things in kind of these abstract philosophical terms. He's not the unmoved mover. He's not just the source of all things. It talks about him as a father. So you can't talk about his providence without talking about his loving care. 
for the world, his, his tender governing of all things. And the verse that really has stood out to me, because we've been looking at it so often as a church, and I realize this story, this passage that we're looking at today, is a great place to see it play out, is where God identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Remember what he said, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the, God, uh, the, the Lord identifies himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I think one of the things that we're seeing in this story is what it looks like for those sins to play out in the third and the fourth generation. We can see it going from father to son to grandson. But zoom out. The big picture, the big story, is a God who is faithful, not just to two or three or four generations, but to a thousand. By the way, I did the math on that. Um, if you assume that a generation is somewhere between at least 10 or 20 years, right? That would be at the very low end, right? You know, then you're talking 10 to 20,000 years. That's all of recorded human history or more. Um, we're seeing here how our actions have consequences and sins play out in three and four generations. But in the background, the big story taking place is a God who, in the midst of that, is being faithful over the whole scope of human history. So let's, let's take a look at this. This, this passage um, is structured between these two bookends. I, I, I intentionally went back a little bit. We read a little bit of the passage we read last week, um, the part about Leah um, beginning to have the first of Jacob's children, um, because the bookends of this passage are so clear. The passage begins, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. And then at the end of the passage, the last verse, it says God remembered Rachel. In between, we don't hear directly from God very much. But those bookends are the frame in which this whole thing is taking place. In some ways, you read this, and this reads like a story of a culture um, in which women are oppressed, women are treated as being valued only for the fact that they can have children. The men don't see them at all. We'll come back to that in a moment. But God sees. God sees that Leah is hated. God remembers Rachel, and he is acting uh, for them. Um, so let's take a look at each of these characters in this, in this story. Let's look at Leah. Let's look at Rachel. Let's look at Jacob. So Leah, you remember from last week, was Laban's older daughter. Remember this? So Jacob thought that in exchange for working seven years for his uncle Laban, he was going to be given Rachel, his daughter, uh, the one that he wanted uh, to marry. <clears throat> but Laban deceived him. Laban threw a feast on his wedding night um, and got Jacob so inebriated that he didn't realize that instead he had been given Leah in marriage instead of Rachel. 
right? And there's that verse that says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Um, that's when he first, he first notices. You need to understand, this puts Leah in a position which is not just emotionally devastating, not just lonely. This is an economically precarious place for her to be. For her to be the unwanted wife in a polygamous marriage. Um, as Bradley said last week, nothing about this is the way God wants it to be. Later on, when God gives the law, he specifically says, you don't marry two women. You certainly don't marry two sisters. Nothing about this is, is God's design. And one reason would have to be because the unwanted wife, of course, is put into this horribly precarious position. You can hear the grief and the sorrow that Leah uh, expresses. Um, she says, the Lord has seen my affliction. She has children. The Lord has heard that I am hated. Now at last, my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. It's, it's impossible to read this without being moved um, by the anguish and just by the sheer tragedy um, of this. Because of course, Jacob's not attached to her. There's no sign in this passage that Jacob ever moves toward Leah with any kind of affection. <clears throat> um, last week, Bradley made the point um, of how Leah, being a woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and a, Leah, and a woman who was rejected relative to her sister, who was beautiful in form and appearance, these are words that point us straight at Jesus, right? Jesus was the one who had no form or appearance. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, in many ways, Leah is a, a pointer towards Christ uh, in, this, in, this, in this passage. She really briefly seems to recognize that her husband's affection can't bear the weight that she's putting on, on that she's trying to, to, to rest on it. With her fourth son, instead of saying, this time my husband will love me, this time my husband will be attached to me, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. But, but even that moment is really fleeting, isn't it? Because if you, you keep reading the passage, and she's just flung straight back into rivalry with, with her sister. Um, you know, and at the very least, one thing that that can point us to is how, you know, even if you would say that God is acting graciously in Leah's life, um, even if you can say that her expression, this time I will praise the Lord, is an expression that comes out of faith, the life of faith is not one that's a, a strictly just straight, smooth, upward trajectory, right? It's not like once we get it, we never fail again. God is going to be at work in the lives of people who get it progressively, as it were, but who also fail and fall back a lot. Um, yeah, she's right back into rivalry with her sister. She's reduced to hiring her husband for a night of sex in exchange for these mandrakes, <clears throat> which were thought to promote fertility. And the name that she gives to her next son uh, to Issachar, um, she says, oh, where is that? She says, God has given me my wages 
because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which is a play on the Hebrew word for wages. It's as though she's saying, this time I have earned this. These are my wages. And it's really tragic because you can't help remember that she herself was given as wages to Jacob. Bradley made this point as well, that Laban had effectively said to Jacob, you are not a member of this family, right? You don't just get a place in this family like a son. You're a hired hand. Now tell me how much I have to pay you. And Jacob's answer is Rachel. And Laban engineers the situation, so he's able to give Leah first. Um, it's tragic. Um, Leah was given as wages. Both of the men in this story, neither of them, are seeing the women as anything other than objects of exchange and objects of desire. There is nothing in this that is God's design. The hero of this story, again, one who sees these women as women, as people, is God. He's the one that sees that Leah is hated and the one that remembers Rachel. What indication do we have that God honors Leah in a way that Jacob never does? Her family is pretty illustrious. Through Leah come Levi, the Levites, the priests, Moses, who's himself a Levite, and of course, from Judah comes David, comes Jesus. So in the end, God honors Leah with a name that is remembered forever. Um, that's not something that she ever receives from her husband or from her father. What about Rachel? What do we see in her? Well, she has, in a sense, what Leah wants. She has Jacob's affection. But she doesn't have what Leah has, which is children. She comes to Jacob and says, Give me children or I die. Um... We're going to come back in a second to the way that Jacob responds uh, to her. It's pretty horrible. Um, But for now, with no hope of having children, she gives Jacob her servant, uh, Bilhah, to have children in her place because they would be legally hers. That's the way it would work. Um, This, of course, harkens back to the way that Sarah was scheming in giving her servant Hagar to Abraham. Um, But this was not how God was going to keep his promises then, and it's not how he's going to keep his promises now. Um, God is a God who repeatedly has seen, who has known, who has remembered these women, who has seen Sarah, who has seen Rebecca, who sees Rachel, as well as Hagar. He's a God who cared for Hagar. I think you can even say he sees Bilhah, and Zilpah, just on the basis of one thing, which is that we know their names. That's kind of a shocking thing. Like These are two servants. These are not high-status individuals, but we know their names 5,000 years later. I mean, think of the most famous person that you know right now, and ask yourself, how likely is it that anybody will know their name in a hundred years, 
right? Well, pretty likely. But what about in 500 years? What about in 1,000 years? What about in 5,000 years, right? Or go backwards. How many names do you know from 5,000 years ago? You don't know that many. Most of them are coming from these stories. And you know Bilhah's name. And you know Zilpah's name. That's a pretty amazing honor uh, that God has given uh, to, these, to these two women. And, and when there's genealogies later, those genealogies list their children as being Bilhah's children and Zilpah's children, even though they legally would have belonged to Leah and Rachel. Scripture records them as being theirs. <clears throat> Lastly, I want to look at Jacob. Um, and I want to come back to the way that he responds uh, to Rachel to try to see what's going on uh, with him. And for right now, it's not good. Um, Jacob does not come across well in this passage at all, right? I mean, one commentator was very crass about this and said, in this passage, Jacob is basically just put to stud, right? I mean, he, he more or less does nothing but father 12 children in this, in this passage. The one speaking role that he has is in verse 2 of chapter 30, right? Rachel comes to him, says, give me children or I shall die. And he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, there's two problems with this. Problem number one, nothing comes out of his mouth in the way of prayer. There is no prayer on his lips. In this passage, and frankly in most of his life, it's one of the things that really stands out about Jacob. In this case, it stands out particularly starkly because if you go back a generation and look at when the same thing happened to his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah, when Rebekah couldn't have children, Isaac prayed. That was the first thing Isaac did. And it said, God heard that prayer, and Rebekah conceived and gave birth to Esau and Jacob. Jacob doesn't pray once uh, throughout, this entire, um, throughout this entire passage um, in, and in most of his life. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Can you see how prayerlessness, on the one hand, and the kind of defensiveness that we see in Jacob here can go hand in hand? Look at, look at what he says again. He says, am I in the place of God? Okay, strictly speaking, he's correct, right? He's not God. He can't make Rachel have children. But why is he getting so defensive and so angry? Could it be, have there been times in your own life when you have found yourself responding with that kind of defensiveness, that kind of irritation, because you're being made to feel as though you're being asked to bear a responsibility that you can't possibly bear. And could it be that the way that we're supposed to respond to that is by turning towards the one who can bear it? What if Jacob instead were to have said, I can't give you children, but I know one who can. My father taught me about him. My grandfather taught me about him. Let's pray about this. Is it possible that he would have been less defensive in that, in that moment? Is it possible that you and I would be less defensive with each other if our first instinct 
when being faced with a demand, were to pray, to recognize, yeah, that's beyond me. I can't do that on my own, but I know one who can. And so I'm not without resources. I can turn towards prayer. See, so what's happening here is that Jacob is living like an orphan. Back to this idea that when the Bible talks about providence, it primarily talks about him being a father. Jacob is living as though he has no father. I guess it's not hard to understand why. This is, this is one of the places where you see the generational sin propagating through. Remember, his own father preferred his brother to him, right? That might be a lot to get over, but that's kind of Jacob's story, is learning to live as though he actually has a father. At this point, he hasn't done that. When you're living as though you have no father, if you're living like an orphan, it will impact not only the way that you talk to God, but it will impact the way you talk to other people, the way you talk to other people about God. That brings us to the second big problem in what Jacob says, and this one is really serious. Rachel has said, give me children or I die. Jacob does not pray. Jacob does not challenge a culture which only values women for their capacity to bear children. Maybe that would be asking too much, but he doesn't do anything like that. Instead, he blames God for withholding the fruit of the womb from Rachel. And that should remind you of something. <clears throat> what other story can you think of when someone accuses God of withholding fruit? It's the garden again, right? And this time, the role that Jacob is playing in levying that accusation against God, he's not stepping into the role of Adam. He's stepping right into the role of the snake. Um, it was the serpent who said, why isn't God letting you taste of that fruit? Has God really said that you can't eat uh, from any of these trees? It was the serpent that got Adam and Eve doubting God's goodness to them. It was the serpent who worked to convince them that they had no father, that they had no one who would take care of them, that they were effectively on their own. Jacob's got one line in this entire passage, and it is literally diabolical. Without the bookends to this passage, without the beginning and the end, this would leave us in a pretty dark place, right? But we need to remember that even while the foreground, even while the events that are in front of us are showing the sins playing out in the third and the fourth generation, right, and just seeing the mess of this family and the mess that humanity is making of everything, the frame for the whole thing is a God whose faithfulness extends throughout all of human history to a thousand generations, and a God who saw that Leah was hated and will honor her. 
a God who remembers Rachel, a God who will give Rachel a son. He gives her Joseph in this passage. Her last words in this passage are, may the, lad, may the Lord add to me another son. And he'll do that as well. Um, he'll, give her, he'll give her Benjamin. But there will be another son. Benjamin won't be the last. We've mentioned before, we're still looking for the one who's going to crush the head of that serpent. At the moment, we've got humans that are playing the role of the serpent. So we've got a ways to go. But one day, there's going to be another son added to this family. One day, Jesus is going to be born. Um, one day, Jesus is going to come to finally buck the trend, to finally crush the head of the serpent. We're finally going to see exactly what it means that the Lord's faithfulness extends across a thousand generations and how it can be that the Lord can both be full of steadfast love and rich in mercy and slow to anger and yet one who will by no means clear the guilty. Because Jesus is going to be the one who stands in our place, who stands in Jacob's place, who stands in Leah and Rachel's place, who bears their sin. He's going to be the one who is going to take the judgment for that sin in order that we can be set free. We come to this table. Bradley was talking about this. Um, I can't remember where this, where this was. If it was in leadership training this morning, I think it was. Um, he was reminding us that coming to this table, the reason that we do it immediately after the preaching of the word is because it's meant to be our first act of repentance. It's meant to be our first act turning back towards God. I want you to think about that. Your first act of repentance in light of God's grace is not an act of penance. It's not doing something that would earn the Lord's favor. Your first act is not to fast. Your first act is to feast because that's how we turn towards God who has declared that he is our father, who knows what we need, who is able to give us what we need. We acknowledge him as being that good and loving father. Let's pray together.